I feel it's safer to keep my head down and get through a program, get through research without making too much of a fuss. I think also it's because there's a lot of pressure to kind of not only keep your head down, but also fit in. And like, there's this idea of what is a model scientist. And, you know, I think we're moving away from it in some ways, but I think it's still very much a very Western attitude. And so I try to understand, you know, where does my native identity fit into being a scientist or an engineer in these spaces? And since I'm not completely confident in that identity or that part of myself, uh, I think it's safer for me just to code switch and not have to, I think, run up against people who may question my experiences as being a native person too. Hello, and welcome to Informatics in the Round podcast designed to help everyone become a part of the dialogue about topics in biomedical informatics. I'm Kevin Johnson, Physician and Informatics Chair at Vanderbilt, at KBJ Vanderbilt on Twitter, www.kevinbjohnsonmd.net on the web, and you can find this podcast everywhere, but of course you knew that because you did. So we conclude the 2020 year with another episode that straddles informatics education and social issues. Oliver Bairdontwalk is one of our PhD candidates doing data science research at Columbia University's Department of Biomedical Informatics. He's joined by Suzanne Bakken, one of the world's most prominent figures in nursing informatics and professor of biomedical informatics also at Columbia University. Suzanne also holds the distinction of serving as the editor-in-chief for our premier journal of biomedical informatics known as JAMIA. This episode features a sensitive topic, and we all had a chance to bear our souls, present speaker included, during this episode. I would summarize our discussion as being focused on one two-word phrase, code switching. If you've never heard of code switching, it's the process of fitting in by borrowing a phenotype or a way of appearing that is not your nature. We hear about it a lot in the corporate workplace, where women have to act a lot like male counterparts or even in communities where phrases like man up or Uncle Tom reflect an inability to code switch. This may not sound like informatics, but let me assure you it impacts the field in very insidious ways that we hear from all three of the speakers at different times. Please listen to this one carefully. It gets intense in a few places. I gave you a taste for the conversation in my lead-in to this episode, but at least then we could laugh about it. So. Where's the songwriter, you ask? And I say, get ready for something special. I'm actually geeking out about the songwriter, friend of mine, artist, who has agreed to come today. His life has epitomized code switching, as he'll share. Many of you will have seen him on TV, but I'm not going to tell you who he is until he actually tells you himself. I'll stop there and let you meet him to launch this conversation. My name's Nolan Neal. I'm from Nashville, Tennessee, born and raised. You may have heard me singing for a band called Hinder back in 2013 when I was the new guy for a minute. (laughs) Or a couple years later, I was on The Voice season 10, got sent home, and I came back for season 11 and I got four chairs turned doing Tiny Dancer. People may have seen that. Then I somehow NBC asked me to come back again for for another show (laughs) called America's Got Talent, which was a lot of fun. It was awesome. One of the reasons why I was really glad you were able to spend a few minutes with me today is because on America's Got Talent, you did something that just shocked everybody. I remember Simon's look, the look on his face when you talked about your journey, where, wh- how you got to where you were. And a lot of people have done that kind of stuff. But the way you did it and the fact that you had a song to back it up was just phenomenal. And I was wondering if I could get you just to kind of relive that moment. What did you what did you say and what did you sing? Man, um, you know, I had a bunch of people telling me what I should sing before I got there and yeah. the couple weeks leading up to it, but and I trusted their opinions a lot. Um but man, I just I can't explain it. I just felt like I needed to do this song. Um and I did a song called Lost. Yeah. I actually, I did a newer version of it, a rewritten version I'm about to release now. It's called Lost for the Last Time, where I added yes. for the last time. Yes, on. yes, that was perfect, by the way. 
Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Um, the rest of the song is exactly the same. It's just that lost for the last time, which I really think glues it together. It's like it was missing it before. Um, but yeah, and then I told everybody, the cool thing about going in there when, when I was 39 years old was that I knew, I knew for a fact that I didn't care about being famous because I experienced that and it did not bring me the happiness I thought it would. And I know that we hear people say that all the time and it just doesn't hit you until you've lived it, really. I mean, Denzel Washington's like my, one of my favorite human beings. Yeah. Every, everybody says, everybody says I look just like him. <laughs> really? Yeah, I can see it. I'm lying. He does those inspirational speeches, man. I'm like, yeah, man. I, but, you know, I just never, I didn't listen. And anyway, so all I said to them was, if I can just connect with some people tonight and, and some people can connect with this song and get some hope out of it, that's the win for me. I already knew that as long as I could just hit the high note, mm -hmm. <laughs> and because that some nights that note doesn't want to come out. Exactly. That's a tough note. It's yes, it is. Can, and um, and with all that emotion, the fact that you yeah, have, that's the you tricky have, part. You have, to, you have to stay in control. I always tell them to just whenever they try to sing high, they always think you're supposed to sing harder and more air. Yeah, you know. And I was like, I always say, just whistle real quick, and they'll whistle. I was like, now whistle it, but blow as hard as you can. Right. I was like, now I so I get him to sing a note like doing this. Ha! I call it the poop technique. So my mom taught me. Right? <laughs> and then you're <laughs> you just you want to have no air coming out at all. Yeah. You should be able to put your hand in front of your mouth, right? And yeah. feel no air, no air hit it. That's right. And it's crazy. Like I've taught a few people that that just got it that moment and instantly they were singing high. Yeah. One of them is Bobby from Slava, uh -huh. who would tell you, he would tell you right now, like I was singing like an A was as high as I can get. Now I can hit like a freaking C sharp because of that one night in the kitchen, we were having some beers. <laughs> mm -hmm. I obviously I don't drink anymore, but it was funny. I just said, no, dude, it's just like this. And he just did it. And I was like, there you go. You got it. You're good. It's like, yeah. Anyways, well, there's my, a super long answer for you. That's okay. <laughs> Short question. Well, I'll tell you, my story was I was I was singing the Messiah at Lincoln Center, and a friend of mine and I got wow. pretty wasted, went out in the street, and sang the trumpet shall sound, which was like my kill. I could not hit those notes, and we sat there mm -hmm. and we sang it together. Nowhere near as cool as what you just talked about, <laughs> <laughs> but it was the like same kind of a thing. Like I was still aware enough that I was like, wow. Why is this so easy tonight? And it was called totally relaxed yep. and, and totally controlling my breath because I knew I was drunk. And so I had to work at it. Your style, which people are going to hear in a second, you, you put it all out there. And I mean, you're hitting the whole range and, and you are naturally gravelly. So, you know, which, which makes this really unique. I mean, you're one of those singers. When I first heard you, I think I told you, I thought it was I was listening to Seal because the thing you have in common with him, and you're very distinctive, but the thing you have in common with him is you know how to control gravelly, you know, music. You you're able to put grit into wow. it, and it and it sounds it's natural, but it, Thank you, and it's it's just amazing. It's just amazing. He's one of my favorite all time. Actually, I'm currently working on it while I'm about to start it. Uh, I've been working on it, but about to start recording my album called under the cover songs oh really <laughs> unbelievable right i want to um, get that one but yeah i'm doing like fire and rain uh and desperado and kiss by a rose yep yep or kiss from a rose <laughs> yeah well you, you can be kissed by a rose too if it's just watch out yeah. for those thorns <laughs> hey okay so what, what do you want to sing for us that was um that really reflects your journey man now i want to sing seal <laughs> <laughs> man you know you know what I was actually at Hotel Indigo where we met. Yes. And I was sitting on stage and I had the overwhelming feeling. This was about exactly a year ago. I was my first gig back after getting sober, like clean, really clean. Um, I was at a halfway house and they let me go to the Hotel Indigo as long as it was eight in the morning wow. <laughs> to do the morning shift. Jeez. And I was sitting up there and I just had this overwhelming urge to like play Desperado for the first time in my life. I'd never played it. I'd never tried to play it. And I just, I've always wanted to learn it. And I grabbed my phone out and I looked the lyrics up and the bartender walked up. I think her name was Anna. And she said, hey, do you know Desperado? You gotta be kidding. I am not. I swear 
to you on every bit of music that's in my bones and all my music gear and yeah. I swear it's the truth. And I remember looking at her, it was like out of all the millions of songs Correct. in the world. Yeah. And so I just turned my phone around and showed her because she saw I couldn't have hit any buttons that quick. Right. He's like, what? She's, it was just one of those, like seeing a UFO. I was like, right. come on, what? And uh, then I got home. I, I So I just worked my way through it up there on stage. I butchered it. It was terrible. But when I got home, I was playing the exact right key, which was cool. I even knew to put the capo on. Um, but uh, long story short, when I got home, I started reading the lyrics for the first time, really reading them. Yeah. And it's so wild how if I would have learned that song when I was younger, it couldn't have been this. But for some reason, I felt like it felt like my dad was talking to me, mm. you know, you because I was having like questions about my girlfriend. Like, I don't know, man. I don't know if I, you know, if she's the one or not, you know, right. and I've been doing that for years. And, and it says you better let somebody love you and you, yep. know, you ain't getting no younger. These things that please in you, you know, and, and, and it's just even the thing you always want, the ones that you can't get, like the record deals I had never were enough. You know, I had a deal with Virgin Records and Hollywood right. Records. And it was just really powerful night. It was I almost cried and it was so powerful. So I actually recorded this one and um I'm gonna play it for you. Now. Yeah, you gotta play it. You got the you got yeah, the reverb totally. on? Yeah, it's on now. <laughs> um Desperado, why don't you come to your senses? You've been out riding fences for so long now. Oh, your hard one. I know that you got your reasons. These things that I please in you. Hurt you somehow Don't you call the queen of diamonds, boy She'll beat you if she's able You know the queen of hearts is always your best bet It seems to me some fine things Have been laid upon your table but you only want the ones that you can't get Desperado Oh, you ain't getting no younger Your pain and your hunger They're driving you home Oh, and freedom, oh, freedom Well, that's just some people talking your prison is walking through this world all alone. Feet get cold in the winter time. The sky won't snow and the sun won't shine. It's hard to tell the nighttime from the day. You're losing all your highs and lows. Ain't it funny? Come down from your fences Open the gate It may be raining Oh, but there's a rainbow above you You better let somebody love you Let somebody love you Better let somebody love you It's too late. 
Well, that's that's that. Well, first of all, thank you so much. That was amazing, and I and I know the people listening to this are gonna be feeling that because I felt it. That was great. Okay, sounds good, brother. Thank you. Okay, and without further ado, let's keep this going with Professor Bakken and Oliver Bear Don't Walk. With music in any way in your life? I used to play the saxophone back in middle school. That's pretty good. Were you any good at it? Oh, I was absolutely terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was good though. Well, I um, actually got an F in music in middle school. However, I don't have much of an ear, but I really can keep a beat. So my music is really as a dancer. Well, I've certainly seen you in a red dress dancing on more than one occasion. Oh, yes, that would be many, many true, and yeah. often, and often being led around by Ed Hammond. <laughs> <laughs> well, when Ed listens to this now, he can make a point of saying, "I know exactly what she's talking about." <laughs> <laughs> so, well, okay, why don't we go ahead and get started, guys? So, for for our listeners, let me just introduce everybody by name. Hi, Sue. Hi, Kevin. So that's what she sounds like. Hi, Oliver. Hey, Kevin. Hey, hey. So um, before we start, or as we start, Oliver, you, you brought up something that I think is incredibly important, and by the way, unique. We've never had this happen before. Would you mind giving us a land acknowledgement? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Uh, usually these kind of meetings happen in person when we're all together, but um, things are a bit different now. So I wanted to acknowledge the different peoples of whose land we're occupying at this point. So Kevin, you're on the ancestral homeland of the Cherokee, Shawnee, and Yuchi. Sue, you and I are on the uh, ancestral homeland of the Lenape. These different people, uh, you know, have been here for a very long time. And because of uh, forces like colonization, westward expansion, and manifest destiny, um, they're all over the U.S. and some of them aren't located on their ancestral homeland anymore. But there are forces today, or there are lots of um, actions today to try and revitalize culture, uh, language, as well as the people. So I'm thankful for uh, these people as a past, present, and future stewards of this land, and for the chance to be able to gather here and um, have this conversation with you all. I agree, thank you very much. That's, it's amazing how much history there is kind of embedded in our society, that it takes somebody like you to remind all of us about that. So I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the, the topic today relates to that. And I'm going to end up putting Oliver on the spot here a little bit. Um, <laughs> but it actually started with a podcast that we did about anti-Black racism uh, a few podcasts ago. And we had a student on there named Philip Adejumo, who is an Olympic swimmer and a, an informatics data scientist. But he's also a Black man like me. And one of the things that he brought up was the fact that as a Black man, he wanted to be able to think about issues that related to being black as he moved into an informatics career, but he recognized, and he was challenged on this, but he recognized that he would never be able to get those grants. And he recognized that he didn't have the role models to really identify a body of work that would uniquely benefit our population. And I then remembered the conversation that, that you, Oliver, and I have had and Sue, we've had similar conversations in different areas about populations who maybe enter fields and can't necessarily get the same respect that they should or be able to do the things they'd like to do. So I thought we'd talk about that a little bit just to unpack it. I've had a couple other conversations in my life that I, I don't talk about too much. So when I first went to Hopkins, Levi Watkins, who is a well-known cardiac surgeon and actually the first African-American medical student ever at Vanderbilt, when I ran into him at Hopkins, he essentially said, it was a little bit Aaron Burr-like. It was, you know, this is what I believe, but this is not the time for me to express it. That I need to be a little further in my career, as he put it, a little safer, with more credibility and more allies, and then we're going to do some things. And that's what he did in his career. Frank Gosky, who was the chair of pediatrics when I was at Hopkins, made a point of always being a person who questioned dogma. He had question authority, question dogma work, sort of the phrases everybody used about Frank. But Frank told me that although he'd been like that his entire life, he really waited until he had data that allowed him to question dogma before he started questioning it. So even though he instinctively knew something might be wrong, he knew that that was not going to be the right way to move forward. So in, in both cases, there was a sort of stifling of what you believed versus what you did. Um, 
And then Oliver, your story comes out. Would, would you share, are you comfortable sharing your story with us? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So I've always been really interested in problem solving as well as um, finding patterns. So, you know, a lot of mathematics. And in undergrad, that got me started into data science, essentially. And looking around, I saw that a lot of the jobs were focused on, you know, um, take this person's data, serve them an ad, or find something that, you know, we might want to be able to sell them, which, you know, are like challenging problems in and of themselves. But I figured that if someone's going to be giving me their data, they may, might as well benefit from it. And like think of it as a partnership. So biomedical informatics kind of became the uh, best choice for me because I'm working with people's healthcare data and trying to make sure that they can benefit in some way from uh, providing me with that. I think that stems from this idea of giving back and realizing that my success takes place within a community. A big part of the reason I'm here is because of so much community support from, you know, my family back home in Washington to my tribe back in Montana. And I really figure that if, you know, whatever I do with my education should be in, in some way be giving back to my communities. That being said, I've grown up in some very, uh, well, places with just like not a lot of Native Americans. Right. And that's been kind of difficult for me. I've been navigating these spaces which are um, very white, not set up for, you know, uh, BIPOC. And I think in some ways... People who don't know, what is BIPOC? Oh, yeah. Uh, Black, Indigenous, and people of color. Um, Yeah, and I think navigating those spaces has taken what I think of as, uh, well, I think it was called code switching, which is, you know, when I'm with a bunch of natives, like I'll talk very differently, I'll act very differently. When I'm in a space with um, non-natives or people who I don't think would understand that, uh, I will act very differently. And I think I've been doing that a lot of my entire life because of the field I've chosen to be in. And I think there's a lot of wear and tear that happens there, being away from your culture and then also um, having to act a certain way as a self-preservation technique. Now, just quick, do you pass as white? I think in the winter, I actually pass as white more often, but <laughs> but um, I'm usually used to, you know, getting asked, like, what kind of brown I am, and usually people pass me as a, some kind of Latinx. Um, but I'm half Native American, I'm part of the uh, Crow tribe in Montana, and then half white as well. So you were saying that um, that as you were sort of involving this interest in a field like informatics, you were also finding more and more that you were very isolated because there really weren't people like you. But you knew that going in. And mm-hmm. how, did you, how did you kind of reconcile the fact that you knew you were gonna be all alone? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think early on, you know, in undergrad, it's, it's easier to find a community, I think. And I was very lucky to have a great uh, Native American community um, at Stanford for undergrad. But, you know, as I found, as I progressed more and more into my education, I got more and more into STEM fields, there were fewer people of color around me. And choosing to do a PhD, I, you know, knew that that was absolutely going to be an issue. I think I figured I could find my community anywhere. You know, even if it was a very small community, I would be able to find some group of Native Americans. And the undergrad campus here has a very strong group of uh, Native American undergrads. But what I found is that, you know, Going through this PhD program, I haven't had as much time as I've, I would like to, to be able to connect with them. And I don't think that was quite something I expected, but maybe I should have just with all the work that goes into a PhD. Let me stop you there for a second. Sue, you've been around a whole lot of PhD programs and a lot, a lot of graduates. Is his um, reality of being isolated something that you experienced before? And Yeah, I think it is. Um... I think it is a reality for many. And uh, this afternoon, I just, um, my 37th PhD student just defended this <laughs> afternoon. <laughs> and so I've been doing this quite a while. And I've had a fair, um, I was talking to Oliver earlier, my first PhD student in nursing was was actually, was actually Native. And then I have, um, my second at Columbia is, has kind of returned to her indigenous um, roots as well, and has decided to acknowledge that after several, uh, probably several decades of, of thinking about it. And that's um, Leanne Curry, and she and, and Oliver have, have met now. But I've had a fair number of PhD students who were Black or Latino, also people who have been LGBT, but people may feel. Um, 
and that can be very, you know, that can be very hard. But I remember one of my Latino um, postdocs, this was in nursing, not in DBMI, who said, you know, if the old white ladies aren't part of the solution, basically we're screwed. <laughs> and because <laughs> we because we all have to be part, you know, we all have to be part of the community. But in and the things I've learned um, through the years is somebody who's in graduate school, they may need different things. And I remember having um, a student come to me and she said, well, I've just read this things and when the mental models of, you know, the styles of the advisor and the advisee don't match and, you know, like it could be an issue or something like that. And from my perspective, having done this a lot because I'm old and I've been around a long time is to be clear, you're an old white lady. Yeah, it's not. Um, it's my job to work with someone to figure out what they need and whether it's structure, whether it's motivation, whether it's tough love because they need to kick, kick in the butt, but to kind of whether it's boundaries. But you kind of work together to figure out what that is. And that's what you end up providing to that person. And so every PhD student doesn't get the same thing from me because they, they don't need the same thing. And so, uh, but I do run into, uh, but I've run into many times the issue that we're talking about here where they're trying to kind of find their, find their way and may not uh, feel like they have a home or a lot of role models. And one of the things we do, uh, that we talk about is acknowledging who you are, but also the importance of like really being successful in what it is that you're doing, because that's one of the ways by being successful, you're able, able to become a role model. And so that, that's a great segue. So Oliver, is it, why did you have to code switch? And I'm asking that question somewhat naively. Is it prejudice? Was it for your own kind of um, comfort to fit in? What was holding you back? Part of it was definitely, I guess, unique to me being Native American. So, like I said, I grew up um, in Washington State. My tribe is in Montana. And I didn't really have a lot of interactions with other Natives. And so, I, essentially, you know, I grew up uh, in a very white community, and I grew up what I would consider very white. And it took me a while to um, understand more and more what it meant to be Native. And I think that kind of comes with a sense of, am I native enough? Like, is it okay for me to be native in these spaces and not being very sure of that identity? But through the time, throughout my time in like undergrad and my master's, I've become more comfortable with that identity. Now being native in non-native spaces, I think the reason I usually code switch is because uh, in some ways I don't want to stick out too much. Um, it can be kind of scary to stick out like that. Like sometimes it's nice and get recognition, but other times I feel it's safer to keep my head down and get through a program, get through research without making too much of a fuss. I think also it's because there's a lot of pressure to kind of not only keep your head down, but also fit in. And like, there's this idea of what is a model scientist. And, you know, I think we're moving away from it in some ways, but I think it's still very much a very Western attitude. And so I try to understand, you know, where does my native identity fit into being a scientist or an engineer in these spaces? And since I'm not completely confident in that identity or that part of myself, uh, I think it's safer for me just to code switch and not have to, I think, run up against people who may question my experiences as being a native person too. Well, I will say, I have heard now from a number of our grad students, this whole idea of putting my head down. And it really bothered me. You know, the fact that we have students who are coming in from very different cultural backgrounds, I view that from a precision medicine lens, right? As we have all these people who can ask brand new questions that Sue might not think of and I certainly won't think about, but they're kind of afraid to ask those questions because that suddenly exposes them for more than what they want to be exposed for in this community. Talk, Sue, talk to me about this. You've had a couple of Native students. Did you, did you encourage them to do work that they thought was going to be important to their people? People have made different choices and they particularly might make certain choices at the time of their dissertation, but they then they may be attracted to doing something more related to their culture a little bit later on. I've had a, a fair number of students who were Latino and because I have 
had a substantial number of research projects in that area. Often, I may get, in that instance, I may get people who end up studying that as at the dissertation level or during the postdocs. But for some people, it does happen a little, a little later, like um, Oliver was talking, was talking about that. And what you've been talking about as well from some of your advice you got at Hopkins as well, um, where they seem to say, you know, I'm learning the methods, you know, I'm start beginning to focus on this and I'll have opportunities to broaden and apply these methods maybe in a more, uh, in a more novel way when I'm a little bit further, further along in my career. So, hey, Oliver, in the black community, when I was a kid, um, and I was raised as a, um, I was raised in neighborhoods that were primarily white, and I would occasionally go to see my grandmother who lived in inner city Baltimore. And I had to get very used to the term Uncle Tom. I was the kid who talked like this. I did not have a very good Baltimore accent because I really didn't try to have a good Baltimore accent and I wasn't very streetwise. And it, you know, I wore it on my sleeve. So I, I, I almost couldn't code switch because I didn't see enough. You know, I used to joke that I had to go back to my grandmother's to understand the new handshake because I just, you know, I would go to the barbershop and think, what are they doing? How, how do I do that? Slow it down, you know, break it apart. I mean, it was pathetic. So fast forward to um, you. This whole idea of Uncle Tomness turns out to be super important if I were to now, as an older person, start to try to do research, which I have in our community, and I can't at that point kind of code switch in reverse, right? Act more black than I typically do. Do you worry or did you worry that if you didn't start to express your the culture that was meaning the most to you early on that you might actually be unable to do it when you were older? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so I've always wanted to do research with Native Americans. Um, and as Sue was talking about, you know, like I figured I had to get a base first and like that will come later. But there's definitely this fear that if I go and try and work uh, with my tribe or with another tribe on a research project, I'll look like just another outsider coming in, not because of the way like, I physically look, but the, of the, because of the way I act, because of the world I've lived in for so long. And so it was definitely a fear of mine and still is. And I think one of the things I'm grappling with is, you know, when do I take time to go back and kind of like reacclimate, you know, go and visit my cousins and my aunties back in uh, Montana and just like live with them for a little while and become reaccustomed to my culture. So, you know, right now the NIH and, and all the work that we're doing in precision medicine has been facing this challenge of how do we involve Native Americans in the data collection that we could actually use to improve disease management and health maintenance in the population. And there's so few people like you that it would seem as if you almost have a calling and, it, and, there's, an, and there's an opportunity. Do you feel that way or do you feel like, not yet, I'm afraid, I need more skills, I'm not going to get tenure? I mean, what, tell me what you're thinking about. Yeah. You know, I, I, I would say like, Four months ago, I was definitely in the mindset of, you know, not yet, I need more tenure. Something I'd always learned from my dad was, you know, keep your head down, get these degrees, you'll be able to make change later. And I think with uh, the recent killing of George Floyd and so many others and the protests that have been happening and, you know, the awakening of, you know, the non-Black community to what's going on in this country, I really started to realize that if not now, then when, you know, and if not who, or if not me, then who. I really want to start pushing myself to not only, you know, have a firm grasp of the methods I'm doing research on, but also kind of branching out and saying, like, you know what, I have to be someone who can, who's going to teach myself more about, you know, working in indig indigenous communities, doing research in indigenous communities. And there are great researchers out there who I can reach out to and talk to about this stuff. Oliver and I talked during, when he was interviewing for the PhD program, and they get to, I think, say they need to get to pick some people who they want to talk to. And the thing that we talked about was because I had done a large community-based study of Latinos and he said at some point I'm very interested in in doing something you know similar to this and so as I look at some of the things and I've seen you know some of the things that um, some of Oliver's you know, citations for some of the work he's doing and he's doing some work in social determinants of health and that kind of thing. So I see that he's doing, you know, some very interesting work that is a piece of the puzzle and how I always think about, you're putting together some pieces along the way 
and no one really gets to do it all in their PhD, even if they want, it just doesn't happen because it's the beginning, not the end. And so when I'm hearing him talking, I'm, you know, I'm thinking, gosh, you know, he should do a, he should do a postdoc with an ethnographer or do something and computational sociology, but it sounds like he might want more ethnographic kind of thing. And there are fabulous people to do that kind of thing, because I think he has such a a chance to really be able to pull together computational skills with, and when we think of many of those, they're very quantitative, they're very objective, but what I hear him kind of yearning for is to be able to do something that would be more naturalistic, more ethnographic, more subjective, and where you, you know, you're embedded rather than objectively either asking questions or, you know, pulling the data in which you uh, lack the context. He'd been in school many years. He's probably not so much thinking uh, about what might kind of be the next step, but I think getting that that additional different kind of training to complement what you've learned, then you're you're already unique in many ways, but this is a way in which you would be, you know, methodologically uh, unique and being able to to address some of these incredibly important problems. So, Sue, you're editor in chief of our journal, the Journal of the American Medical Informatics Association, or JAMIA. Do you think that work from groups of people who are relatively underrepresented is work that you are likely to preferentially put into the journal? Or would you say that it's going to have low impact, therefore I can't afford to put much of this in the journal? Yeah, well, I think about it a number of of different ways. And um, when I think of my career in general, there's been a lot of times where I say I've had a lot of good no's, meaning no was led to me many, many times. But in the end, it turned out to be the best answer for me. Now, I have to tell Um, you, I thought you were going to say, people have said no to me, and I've said something I was going to have to bleep out. (laughs) I just didn't know. I I said, (laughs) no, 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 you. And I was going to say, Sue, uh, luckily I can edit, so we'll take care of it. No, 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 no. But but the um, one of my good no's, although it didn't feel so good at the time, was I applied to be the Jamie editor-in-chief eight years before I actually got it. And one of the things I'd say at the time was those were eight really important years for me. I I got into much more health disparities um, research. I really think I cemented, you know, some of the things I was particularly interested in uh, from the community perspective. And in doing this, I mean, when I interviewed for the job, I, you know, I said, I want to do what I'm going to call consequentialist informatics and doing what matters most. And I really felt at this point in time, because the the journal was in a very good place because of Lucila's leadership, but I just said, I don't want incremental methods. We really need to be focusing on, on very important topics. So one of the ways I... I think about it because Jamie, of course, is interested in things that are innovative, things that are generalizable and that kind of thing. But I always think about it um, in context, which is where is the state of knowledge development in a particular area? And for something like clinical decision support, it really, we need innovation, we need, you know, we need generalizability, right. we're not interested in single site studies, but there can be some stuff that is uh, because the the knowledge base is much more limited, that it could be very descriptive. So I really tried to broaden uh, the editorial board um, in in particular to try to get more BIPOC uh, <laughs> on um, on the editorial board. Um, also paying attention to gender, but also thinking a lot about kind of scientific diversity as well. Because one of the things that I've seen and one of the challenges people who end up getting interested in a different type of question that might be much more of interest to a particular community because they're not the traditional, they're not traditional quantitative science Right. Often it does become more difficult. Uh, so I think very much 
as, you know, as editor in chief and really making sure that, of course, it's important to have the quality there, but really to look at the breadth of scientific methods that could be applicable to, to address the questions. And so we have brought in, I'd say, a lot more, a lot more social science. Well, I can't wait to see with the special issue whether you get younger people who want to do critical feminist issues or whether you get people who are no longer afraid of bringing up those issues in an informatics journal. You know, one of the things I'm beginning to, I'm beginning to see actually from some of our younger editorial board members, and I think it could be, it could, it's something that could be done even more, but I've, and I've definitely been um, very sensitive to it. Um, we have sent uh, papers back to people who are, simply treating um, race as another demographic variable and are not thinking about what it means in terms of a potentially a whole history of structural racism that came into this. And it's not, you know, they're treating it as a personal demographic variable, but not the context of what that- It's not the focus. Might mean. Right. And so I have been um, really pleased when I've sent back papers to people and just said, you know, you can't treat race like this, you know, it's a bigger thing, it's, uh, you know, you need a more nuanced way of addressing this, we need to think systemic, we need to think structural. The revisions have been amazing. I mean, the people really stepped up to the plate and they actually they actually knew how to do it so it wasn't like oh i can't believe she wants this from me that these were people who had the skills to do it but maybe didn't think maybe they thought it wouldn't be appropriate i think that in an informatics journal i think it's academic code switching i think that the Mm -hmm. issue is if i want to get this paper in the new england journal it can't be about my specific topic it has to be about your specific topic, and then I put my variable in it and show that there's a difference. But I don't dare go as far as to make the entire paper focused on that issue. So Oliver, what questions can we answer? What questions can we answer for you that help you to feel more comfortable or maybe to help somebody who's listening to realize that their unique situation can be addressed as a part of their career. It doesn't have to be hidden. Oh, yeah, yeah. I guess one of the big things I've seen is um, recently what's been happening is with my peers, we've been having more open and frank discussions about issues surrounding race, gender, sexuality. And it's been uh, a breath of fresh air, honestly, to be able to have those kind of conversations. I'm wondering if either of you have seen that happen among your peers, I guess, like these very frank conversations where we just get to talk about these issues uh, in kind of more or less a safe space, I suppose, because everyone's still learning how to talk about them and just like having the freedom to discuss and also be uh, a listener too. It's interesting. One of the things I wonder about is whether or not kind of the EPPE of Zoom has made it easier for some people to be able to, to talk about some of the to talk about some of these things because they're generally talking about it from at least a safe physical place <laughs> and and it's not quite you know so much um, maybe as much in the face I, I mean I've been part of a part of a school who's made a a big commitment to this. I'm speaking on the nursing side. And when you've talked about code switching, one of the code switches I've consistently done is both going between nursing and biomedical informatics, but also going between, particularly in the early days, between a, a field that was predominantly male and I was coming from a field that was predominantly female. And, and I did have to be careful about that because I was in meetings that would be predominantly male and the communication style was um, interruptive. You were loud. If you didn't start talking before somebody else finished, you never got heard. 
And then I went to, I remember one time going from a male dominated meeting to going to a group at the American Nurses Association one day after the other. And I came in and I, I had not, I had not code switched <laughs> from the other meeting and I did something and everybody was like staring at me because um, uh, females in general, and I think uh, often in the nursing community is particularly uh, tends to have be very collaborative, have wonderful communication skills and um, are very, very, uh, I think behave very well in group situations. Yep like that so we can get into i'm sorry i end up getting a little off topic on that kevin well, well no but i you know both of those points are important and i you know i'm thinking about the literature a guy named martin Kvok from the netherlands but also um um really kevin i'm gonna i'm gonna blank on his name i'll have to fill this in um not homer <laughs> warner but uh, the other guy who did computer-based documentation work in the in the 70s with a link computer uh, from Wisconsin. Do you know him? Oh, no, Wes Clark. No, Wes Clark, oh, no, you're talking, or talking about Warner Slack. Warner Slack, that's the name I was trying yeah. to get. Yeah, no, Wes Clark, and Wes Clark, who's our faculty member, Maxine Rockoff's yeah. husband, uh, invented the link, actually. They did it at Wash U, and then Warner Slack Took it right. He was the one who used it to uh, interview patients for the first time. So let me restate this. So one of the things that you just mentioned reminded me of Warner Slack and the fact that some of the earliest studies that we did with computer-based documentation showed that when patients who had issues like depression were interviewed in ways that weren't face-to-face, -face, they were significantly more comfortable talking about their disease. So your point about is telemedicine or are two-dimensional interfaces like Zinc, like Zoom in some way more democratizing, making it more comfortable if you are a person who is unique in, a, in the room to feel more comfortable with that maybe because you're not sharing the same oxygen and I mean, just all the things that are related to it. That to me sounds like something we need to understand in our field because that's, that's an information receiving and giving challenge. And, and is Zoom in some way to your point, Oliver, is it an easier medium for our students to use when they want to express how they feel or how they think or to be inquisitive versus face-to-face -face meetings. Yeah, I, I you definitely feel more see comfortable that. in this setting? Yeah, I think, you know, definitely being able to have these conversations um, on Zoom does, I guess, make it a little bit less scary. So I, I guess I don't know what it is exactly, but, you know, maybe it is because you're not in the same space and everything. But I would also say, like, you know, there is just this kind of cultural shift right now to, yeah, I'm not sure if those conversations will be happening in person or if it's uh, if Zoom is a big change, change behind that. I will say this to your point. I think Susan's point is really valid. What I've noticed at Vanderbilt is the conversation is going, it has a lot more energy around it. Uh, I personally, like a lot of black people in the country, are getting a little tired of getting so invested in the, the opportunity for change only to see it fail once again, right? So the decision I've personally made is I wanna be a part of the conversation, but I'm not leading this conversation. That, I actually need majority people to lead this conversation. But what's surprising to me is that we are actually having a, what, a feel, what feels like a much more equal footing conversation. And I think you might, you might be right about the fact that it's both who we are and the time that we're in and the medium that we are using to communicate right now that could actually allow this conversation to be a lot safer. That's really yeah, interesting. Yeah, I definitely think so. Were there any points in your life when you realized, uh, I guess, you know, to keep using the language I've been using, that it was time that you didn't have to keep your head down anymore, that it was like time to rock the boat uh, and kind of be that, um, be the person to make the change? Absolutely. Um, I have always, and Sue knows this about me, I've always been somebody who's kind of not afraid to be exactly who I am all the time. But around the time that I realized I was gay, I actually didn't know who to talk with, in part because there were entire parts of my personal life that knew nothing about what I was thinking. And in some ways, it was easier for me to be myself when I wasn't in my usual personal space 
So at work, at meetings, um, I can still remember vividly at a major uh, pediatrics meeting, we got lost and had to walk from in New Orleans down Gay Bourbon Street. And I was very interested. I was very curious because I'd never been any place like that before. And one of my colleagues happened to see me and he goes, oh, you want to go in? I, he goes, I'm gay. Let's just go on in. And I, I think he knew, and I haven't asked him, but I think he knew that this was a curious moment for me and that this was an important thing for him to let me experience. Um, I would have never done that if that same meeting had been in other places. Um, and I can also tell you another example, which was I got invited to a drag show. Sue probably remembers this too. I got invited to a drag show at the Amy of Fall Symposium. So there's a drag show called the Adams Morgan, Miss Adams Morgan, that's in the basement of the hotel where we stay. And I got, I got invited to it months before I connected that this meeting and this event were in the exact same hotel. And the days leading up to going, now I'm gonna be on stage the next day and I'm on the board of Amia, so I'm there all day Saturday. All I kept thinking about is I can't be seen here. Like this is, this is going to ruin my career because nobody thinks of me this way and I just was very uncomfortable. So I go to the Miss Adams Morgan thing and I'm as careful as I can be to be discreet when I go in. I take a different elevator down to the level than where the meeting is. I get in. And there's like 20 people from our meeting who were in the room. And I'm with, I'm with a friend of mine who could never code switch if, he, if his life depended on it. He's as yeah. gay as you could possibly look. And, and one of the people in the meeting, I'll just tell you, Karen and Dasha, who you guys know, and they don't, nobody else will know, but two of the people who lead Amy came up to me and they're like, it is so great to see you here. And we were just cutting up and we got some drinks. And it was the first time that I could actually say, you know, to this group, well, I'm glad that my being gay isn't really an issue. And I never told anybody. And from that point on, I realized, what am I hiding? I'm, I'm not failing in this field. These people know me. And as you know well, whenever anything about yourself, if you were passing as white and you disclosed that you were Native American, whenever those things happen, you do have this issue of having a new friends group. Sometimes people redefine themselves. They don't want to be around you, and other people do. And it was so reassuring to me to find out that my AMIA community and my pediatrics community treated me literally exactly the same. And if anybody didn't, I wasn't friends with them to begin with, and I'm really fine with that. And so from that point on, I've been much more comfortable. I actually wrote an article about a kid who had a conversion reaction because he was gay and was closeted. And that's in the, that's in the medical literature now. And I've certainly been much more comfortable talking about things like text messaging, um, telemedicine issues and health disparities. I have zero problem now saying that's a topic I should be writing about and being very comfortable with a viewpoint about it in places where my thought can maybe make a difference. For me, I guess, I mean, one of the things about it, I, because I came from such a female dominated profession, right. I wasn't brought up to like not behave like a woman or to kind of hide being a woman. And so when I came to Stanford, uh, you know, as a postdoc, I, I mean, it was much older. I was very differently skilled, but impossibly because I was older and I'd already been a faculty, faculty member, I continued to behave like a female. And a lot of the trainees would come to me. And this happens when I came to, Columbia as well. And they said, well, you seem to be able to, you know, be succeeding in informatics um, as a woman and being successful in the broader informatics field, not just um, in nursing. And so I would get a lot of questions and I still do from, from people, um, particularly from trainees. And they said, well, you know, how to what do I do? I'm smart, but I still want to be girly. Or how do you do this? Or how do you do that? And I mean, and you just have to, you find your ways of being yourself. And one of the things about maturing, I think your voice gets, your voice gets much stronger. Right. And even though like I said, when we decided to do this, you know, critical feminist theory, qualitative thing um 
not all of the associate editors were on board with it. And I just thought, I'm the editor in chief. Right. I want to do it. And I think it's important. I think it's important to do. And you go, girl. Um, and we're, we're, <laughs> <laughs> and we could, you know, and we could do it. I just, you know, I get, you know, most of the special issue proposals I get are about, you know, general AI and medicine and other things that right. we would regularly. Uh, I was going to say, Oliver, what I'm hearing as an answer to this, as we, we've got to close, I know pretty soon. The, first of all, I hear a couple of really good pieces of news for all of us, right? Every one of us who might be different in some way than the majority, which is to say, you're going you're gonna to succeed. You're an incredibly smart group of people, all of us, and you have to follow a little bit of your instinct, but you also have to create allies. And if we have people like the editor-in-chief of a journal or a boss who may be very much like us, we need to acknowledge you know, what's uncomfortable and have that person in our corner as we start to take some risks. And I think risks beget risks, right? I mean, as you get, yeah, you know, as you learn more and more about what people can tolerate, you're going to be, and I'm going to be, and Sue's going to be much more comfortable trying the next thing. I mean, I, and so, you know, that's my first point. I was also going to make another point, which is if you haven't already seen it, there's a Pixar short called Pearl, P-U-R-L. And if you haven't seen it, promise me you're going to look at it in the next 24 hours because it's phenomenal. And it actually addresses exactly what Sue just talked about and exactly what you just talked about. It's about a ball of yarn going into our workplace. And it's the way only Pixar could do it. It's really, it's got layers in terms of all the issues that you talked about soon. In fact, as you were saying, the whole idea that the male-dominated culture won't allow a sentence to be finished before the next person speaks. In Pearl, that happens, and this yarn has to adjust. Um, it's very fascinating. Well, uh, Kevin, I thought your point was, uh, I really listened when you started talking about risk because we hadn't really talked so much about that, but I mentioned that my career has been a whole slew of what I would call good no's that I had wished were yeses at the time. But one of the things that I always say to people who are early in their career is don't be afraid to take risks and you're going to get some no's when you do it. And I, um, and I think it's very important for people who are further along to take high, highly visible risks and to let people know when it when it doesn't work out and so when I went getting for the for the um, uh, Jamie editorship this time I had announced many many people knew I was going for it but I really and um, and there is a Facebook women in informatics group um, and I just on that morning I kind of asked my sisters and I said I want everyone in the, at 9 a.m., you know, Pacific Standard Time, I want everyone to look in the direction of San Francisco and just send me your energy. Mm. And I felt, I wore my power red into that meeting and uh, it just felt like, I thought, this is my job and I'm here to, this is my job and I'm here to talk to you about that. Yeah. <laughs> I just think that what we have to acknowledge for people like Oliver is we have a safety net. We kind of know how bad it could get. But I think if you're, if you're a brand new PhD, risks are scarier than we can imagine because there is no safety net. And where you could end up is with debt and no job, which feels pretty <laughs> scary. Am I right? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it is very scary. Um, I think that is something that uh, I worry about a lot. But I think I also want to say, you know, having conversations like this really helped me feel that like these risks, um, they're not world ending if things don't work out. That's right. And I do have, you know, people in my corner and like people I can talk to about what can be, uh, you know, kind of difficult conversations to have, but a space like this is a good space to have them and these spaces exist uh, right. in all kinds of different departments. That's a great message. And I have to say, for people who are listening, Oliver, what's your last name? Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, my last name is Bear Don't Walk, and I'm part of the uh, Crow Tribe located in present-day Montana. Right. 
when I first heard your name, I of course knew that you were Native American. So as opposed to certain people who can code switch, if you were brave enough to say your name is, you know, Barack Obama went by Barry, right? Mm -hmm. if, you're, if you're brave enough to say I'm Oliver Bear Don't Walk, you're already two thirds of the way there. There's no question you're not hiding anything with that name. So you should be very comfortable saying and embracing that the editor in chief of Jamia would probably welcome the right kinds of pieces from you that were helping the rest of us to understand where informatics fails Native Americans, right? I think yeah. those would be fantastic papers. Yeah, I asked him to do something over a year ago, so <laughs> I connected. I connected. I connected him with someone and said, "You know, let's think about let's think about doing that." And Oliver is a Jamie reviewer, and I do send. He gets mm -hmm. some. I sent him a piece recently that was specific uh, to natives, but he also reviews other kinds of papers for us as well. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, still making, still making a headway on that. <laughs> Let us know how we can help you. We're going to basically be here, but for I think people listening to this, just know there are support groups. We are here to help people take risks. We will help to provide that safety net if you just reach out to us and let us do that. I bet a new female at the Stanford alumni dinner this 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 in this time period doesn't get asked whose wife they were, which is what <laughs> happened to me at my first alumni dinner. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> really? Do they really do that? Yes. Whose wife are you? <laughs> well, luckily, nobody handed me their dishes and said, please, you know, or refill my drink. <laughs> but the scary thing is, and I'm getting, I'm getting grief for this now, I am way too deferential. And if somebody comes up to me in a, in a Kmart and they say, you know, excuse me, can you tell me where I can get 2XL lingerie? I actually say, well, I don't work here, but I think it's over there where the sign is. And I don't think about it again, right? And, and I have friends who have said to me, I would bitch slap the people who say that to you and say, do I look like I work here, bitch, and just move on, right? I just don't do that. And I, and I think, I frankly, now that everything's happened with George Floyd, I'm actually thinking I may need to do a little bit more of that, just to kind of remind people the world isn't quite as cut and dry as you want it to be. Um, I've also yeah. been. I mean, it happens to me. It happens to me all the time. It happened to me in a restaurant recently that I was in with Patty Brennan, dining outside, social distancing. But I went into the, I, you know, I went into the uh, to use the bathroom, and a customer stopped me, and they said, "Our table hasn't been cleaned up," and you know, and <laughs> I just figured, I mean. I'm just accustomed because I'm, I'm tall and I look like I'm in charge <laughs> yeah. people just, regardless of the setting. And I was a waitress for many, many years. So <laughs> I must've been walking through there with, with true authority. That must be it. I just feel like it's so disrespectful. I just can't, I mean, I, I, I do it, but all I think, I mean, it's a joke, right? So I'll do these things and then Rob and I'll go home and talk about it for an hour. Cause I feel like, what what was there about me dressed like this, not with this on, of course, that would make you think I would be that person, right? I mean, I don't, I don't even understand it, but I do it because all my life, and this is why I was saying it's the George, the George Floydists, the, the anti-black racism friends of mine look at me and say, you need to wake up and recognize this for what it is and start calling people on it. And so I may, so. Yeah, it's a good thing to do. Yeah, probably is. Okay, guys, take care. Have a wonderful weekend. Yeah, thank you. Thanks again to Nolan, Suzanne, and Oliver. Great episode. So while Nolan and I were recording Desperado and continued talking, he also decided to play another song that I think you guys are going to fall in love with. It's become an earworm for me, but one that I happily embrace called the man I used to be. Hope you enjoy this. And again, don't forget to follow me on Twitter at KBJ Vanderbilt if you love this song or if you love this episode. And give me some feedback. I love feedback. Have a great rest of the day.
don't know where to start But looking in the mirror I can see who broke my heart It's more than just insane When all of your tomorrows Feel like lonely yesterdays It's hard to swallow Like a pill laced with sorrow You took anyway So bright that I could blind the sun I used to feel forgiven For the wrongs that I had done Lately the light inside my eyes Is hard to see Like I'm a shadow Of the man I used to be I used to be So I step outside Light a half smoke cigarette And think about this life And all I've lost When the whiskey bottle's empty You can clearly see the cause It's hard to swallow When there's no more time to borrow Cause you blew it all So bright that I could blind the sun I used to feel forgiven For the wrongs that I had done Lately the light inside my eyes Is hard to see Like I'm a shadow Of the man I used to be I used to be Sure, it's hard to breathe when you're drowning in regret, cause there's no one left to leave. Cause I used to shine so bright that I could find the sun, and I was forgiven for the wrongs that I had done. I'm a shadow of the man I used to be I used to be